Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, September 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. In an interview with 60 Minutes last Sunday, President Biden declared the COVID-19 pandemic was over. Backlash ensued. We'll chat with an expert on public health communication about the challenges of talking publicly about COVID three years into the pandemic, whether it's actually over or not. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the twilight of the SPAC boom, biotech's cash crunch, and the next big trial in Alzheimer's disease. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley. Thanks for listening. You've probably heard of the mRNA technology that has been used to make vaccines for COVID-19. But did you know that there are breakthroughs on the horizon to put mRNA to work against a host of other diseases? Tracy Humphreys, a scientist and marketer from Cytiva, is here to tell us more. Thanks, Angus. mRNA is showing tremendous potential to cure diseases like autoimmune and neurological disorders and even deadly pancreatic cancers. Visit Cytiva.com forward slash advanced therapeutics to learn how we're working with biopharma companies to adjust their manufacturing strategies and bring this exciting technology to patients. That's Cytiva, C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. So, Damien, let's kick off Chatty Cathy this week talking about SPACs. Uh, there was some news from the so-called SPAC king. Uh, tell us what that was and kind of maybe what the implications are for biotech. Right. So that person is Shamath Palapatiya. And I actually I tried to dig into it as to whether he was the self-proclaimed SPAC king or whether people just conferred that upon him. I think it's the <laughs> latter. Um, but the the record is a little blurry. He, that, that that yeah, that has become his nickname, widely widely used nickname, the SPAC. Right, and and you know whether that's pleasant or not probably depends on how he's feeling about that. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the news is he had launched a fleet of SPACs and declared SPACs, which are special purpose acquisition companies or blank check companies, or basically a floating entity that goes public so as to later merge with a private company and take it public without an IPO. Um, probably people listening to this are familiar with that because it was such a trend uh, in the financial world in 2020 and 2021. Anyway, Palapatia became something of a public face of it as someone who embraced this concept as, as a new way to go public that was more friendly to companies themselves, to shareholders, to investors. And he was on you know CNBC and, and Bloomberg Television and whatever, and just became, I guess, I, I'm just a roundabout way coming to the SPAC king. Anyway, this week, <laughs> he pulled the plug on two of those SPACs. So, so the way most SPACs uh, are written or are, are codified, let's say, is that those floating publicly traded companies have exactly two years to find a merger target. And if they cannot do so in that time, they return the money to the people who bought into the SPAC IPO in the first place. And Palabatia basically just called it quits on two of those companies to return the money in a blog post, kind of basically explaining that he doesn't look at it as... Uh, a refutation of the SPAC promise. He is still delighted with the companies that uh, his group has already SPAC'd um, in the past two years, but that some of the dynamics have changed and so they're giving the money back. This happened about a week and a half after Bill Ackman, another famous investor, 
um, pulled the plug on the largest SPAC in SPAC history, which had raised $4 billion and was rumored at various points to be going to take WeWork public, going to take, I don't even remember, just like whatever the unicorn du jour was, this SPAC would be attached to it in the, in the roughly two years that it existed. But Ackman, like Palapatia, decided that it just wasn't going to work out. And so $4 billion is going back into the coffers of the people who trusted him in the first place. So, Damien, when you're when you're the guy who's known as the SPAC king and you decide that you're going to unspac two of your SPACs, that sends a pretty uh, clear signal to the markets and to other people that the SPAC uh, trend has, has, you know, is really kind of turned a corner to the downside, like it's kind of over. I think that's kind of how people have interpreted this. It does feel like the late innings of of a trend, uh, as you mentioned, and this is just kind of one headline that confirms writing that has been on the wall for, I would say, the better part of a year. I mean, for one, that that two-year kind of programmed death of SPACs always suggested that, and well, that combined with the sheer number of SPACs that went public, those two things in combination suggested that come 2022, come the, the two-year expiration date of a lot of these SPACs that went public in 2020, there would conceivably be kind of a market for lemons. I mean, are we sure that there were that many privately held companies who didn't want to do IPOs, who were really, really valuable, who would really benefit from this number of SPACs? Or did the trend get a little too hot and was the market suddenly flooded with too many buyers and not enough quality sellers? So it seems like we're kind of reaching that point. And then the writing that was on the wall that probably shouldn't make this surprising are the way that de-SPAC'd companies, which is, say, private firms that merged with SPACs that are now public, the way they've traded, by and large, uh, has been terrible. There's, if you zoom out, there's a de-SPAC <laughs> <Awful>. index <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is down about 82%. And if you look just at biotech and healthcare companies, it's actually generally worse. I haven't run the numbers, but just like the ones we know off the top of our heads have been, have been pretty abysmal. Well, yeah, Damien, there was another like SPAC headline this week, like to your exact point, Renovacore, this company that had gone public through a SPAC, is merging with Rocket Pharmaceuticals. And like less, I think it was like about a year or maybe slightly less than a year after doing this SPAC deal, um, you know, is end up ending up like having to merge with another company to kind of, you know, extend its their their joint cash flows it the performance hasn't been great and we're in this like wonky period where there's still quite a few spacs like that are healthcare focused that are out there that are in like this limbo with this two-year deadline approaching right yeah, I was looking up uh, just this morning that we were recording through a public database called spac screener and there were about 68 specifically healthcare focused spacs still out there looking for a merger target some have longer lifespans than others in terms of the deadlines by which they have to return cash. But, you know, as I was saying before, you start to wonder, like, how many private firms of quality are really looking at this avenue when, and we can talk about this more, when the IPO window is arguably ticking open a little bit uh, in biotech terms? And then furthermore, you know, how many shareholders, if you bought into a SPAC IPO and you're watching all this happen, do you really want to keep your money floating out there trusting that somebody might turn it into a larger amount of money when you see just red numbers through and through with this entire sector. I think it's important to note that this SPAC phenomenon, you know, is not operate it's not operating in a vacuum, right? We're talking, you know, you have to sort of look at it in the context of the overall markets and in 
in particular the IPO market. And so, you know, these things came of age and, and started to really trend. Speaking of SPACs, at the same, you know, while there was a lot of money floating into biotech and other sectors, you know, there were a lot of IPOs. So this was kind of seen as an alternative way, as you said, Damien, to go public. And maybe, you know, there was a sort of this sort of hedge fund pixie dust that was kind of out there sprinkled because a lot of these SPACs were obviously being formed by, you know, well-known investors, hedge funds that had a good track record in, in investing money. And so therefore they would be able to find the best companies to merge into their SPACs. And, you know, looking now, looking back now, we see that, you know, that probably wasn't true, that the the same reasons for why you know the IPO window shut you know there was just too many companies out there too many companies that were early stage maybe not really ready for the public markets but were yet were being pushed onto the to the public markets in the same way that some of these companies that that ended up merging with SPACs are just way too early and it, you know there's not a lot of interest uh, from outside investors to get involved with them and so you know whether you call it a SPAC whether you call it an IPO like you know, pr particularly like sort of preclinical IPOs, you know, they're all in this sort of same distressed boat these days. Yeah, that's exactly the thought that I had, Adam, when like SPACs got really big in biotech. Like the kind of pitch around a SPAC is that like it's it's an IPO alternative that's like better for companies. But in biotech, did we really need an IPO alternative? And it feels like in 2022, we can kind of say, I'm not not really what we needed is like the the public markets to be drawing more interest. It's like the 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 problem isn't like getting to the public markets. It's once what you actually do once you're in the public markets. Yeah, and, and not that SPACs uh, that have yet find merger partners or uh, investment banks looking for uh, companies that do IPOs need any more uh, competitive challenges. But you know, now we've got a host of companies out there that trade at uh, negative enterprise values, like you know, basically are become like these zombie biotech stocks. They're just sort of these public shells of themselves. And, you know, we had a deal, uh, a deal this week, Damien, you wrote about it, uh, you know, uh, a company called Charisma Therapeutics, privately held company that, you know, reverse merged into one of these publicly traded biotech uh, zombie companies uh, called Sess and Bio, which essentially was like all but shut down, except for the fact that the stock still traded. So, you know, and I think, uh, you know, what I saw from reports that there were apparently like 42 different private companies that were competing to reverse merge into Sesson. You know, Charisma sort of won this beauty contest. I mean, that's just another alternative out there. Like you could go, you could do a SPAC, you could do an IPO, you could do a, a reverse merger. So it's just, you know, it's it's gotten so muddled. Meanwhile, at least as far as we can tell from the outside, money is still moving quite rapidly in the private markets in funding biotech startups that are not yet worrying about IPOs or, God forbid, SPACs. And uh, Allison, you had a story this week about a new company taking what sounds like a pretty expansive and novel approach to genome editing. Yeah. Yeah. So this week, I, I gave a little first peek at this company, Tome Biosciences, um, which is a new a CRISPR company that is like really attracting some some big name VCs. Arch, Andreessen, GV, Polaris, Longwood Fund are all involved. Um, Tome's whole pitch is that, you know, compared to kind of what we have right now in, in the gene editing world where, you know, you can kind of work with, you know, and, and augment a small segment 
of, you know, the DNA strand. We're talking like, you know, anything over like a hundred base pairs and base pairs being like the little pairs of like A's and T's and G's and C's that make up, you know, the DNA strand. Anything over a hundred base pairs is is pretty difficult to do right now. Um, they, Tome thinks that they can do thousands, you know, they can change thousands of base pairs with this kind of take on what I've been told is kind of like a take on prime editing that they're developing. Um, They like haven't set at this point any, you know, specific diseases that they're working in, but to like give you a sense, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is, you know, one of the the more popular rare diseases in in the drug world, um, that gene that Duchenne um, that causes and kind of le- leads to Duchenne muscular dystrophy, that gene is like 2.6 million base pairs. So that gives you like an idea of like the size that we're talking about here. So this this concept that Tome has has already attracted a lot of attention. Um, the company hasn't launched yet. They're still operating in stealth mode, but I found out that they had raised, they closed a series A and they're they're working on a series B right now um, to try and, you know, bring that to fruition if they can. And Tom's focus kind of dovetails with a growing sense, which I thought was illustrated really well in a story this week by our colleague Jason Mast, about just how challenging kind of like leveling up CRISPR genome editing will be. It would be really crass to describe the early days of uh, CRISPR clinical trial as being like low-hanging fruit. That's unfair to the many, many scientists. But (laughs) The stuff that people have tried has, by and large, been successful in the early studies that we've seen. And I thought Jason did well to speak to the scientists kind of looking ahead to tackling diseases, tissues, other applications of CRISPR that are just that one step removed, who see that the technology, there's going to be a lot of trial and error. There's going to need to be a lot of creativity to kind of get the technology to where it would need to be to tackle some of these grander applications. And so it's just an interesting kind of thing to watch in the years to come as some very smart people embrace what sounds like a pretty thorny problem. Yeah, even I mean, besides like getting to other types of of tissues in the body, you know, most gene therapies right now are like working by going into the liver. Um, Jason did a really great job pointing out that like, a lot of what we're talking about right now is like, cutting out faulty genes and like the process of like cutting something out of the dna is kind of not simpler because this is you know gene editing and (laughs) nothing about that is simple but like cutting something out of the genome versus actually kind of masterfully like inserting a healthy gene or, you know, making changes to those base pairs and swapping out different base pairs. Those are we're talking, those are two different levels we're talking about here of of gene editing. And we're kind of at level one right now, where it's like we're talking about cutting things. Um, and to get to that next step is the next big challenge for for gene therapy and gene editing. So switching gears again, Damien, uh, you and I and and many other people are anxiously awaiting the results of yet another Alzheimer's phase three study. Um, what uh, give our give our readers a preview of what we uh, of what we're looking for? 
That's right. So uh, our friends at ASI and Biogen, I think in this case that is the correct order, uh, will again have phase three data on an Alzheimer's disease treatment. This one is lecanemab. ASI has said that it expects to have those data or at least something to say publicly about them um, by the end of September, which means that by the next time we record this podcast, we could... Next week. Yes, we could well. We could well know the answer to the question. We'll probably be talking about the results. Maybe we'll be talking about the results next week, hopefully. It's possible. Um, and the question, of course, is does lecanemab work better than placebo at delaying the effects of Alzheimer's disease in patients with an early stage form of Alzheimer's? This is the same question we asked of Aduhelm, formerly Aducanumab. The answer turned out to be really complicated, which we don't need to relitigate here. The hope is that the answer with lecanemab, whether yes or no, will be less complicated, will be clear. Um Basically, it, it's a relatively similar design trial, um, albeit a larger one than, than previous studies of its type in Alzheimer's disease. And uh, ASI and Biogen are using a familiar metric to measure cognition and function in patients in the study. And so we hope to find out that after 18 months of treatment, does using this drug have a statistically significant benefit on cognition and function versus placebo? So the answer hopefully will be yes or no and not some, you know, lots of commas and semicolons and M dashes explanations as to why the totality of the data suggests that blah, 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 blah. But even if the answer is yes, the conversation I think people should prepare themselves for is, and what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, that part's really fascinating to me, Damien, because, you know, like you said, this is a large, this is like 1900 patients were, uh, uh, participants were enrolled into the study. So it's it's actually the largest study ever conducted, you know, to date uh, of a drug, of an amyloid targeted drug. So, you know, we, you know, you think that, all right, that should get you a pretty definitive result. But, you know, one of the, the consequences of having such a large study is that you could, um, you can detect a very small difference, a, a very small benefit with statistical significance, because you have so many patients, the powering of the study is so great. And we, we certainly don't want to get deep into the weeds of biostats on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, but, you know, so yeah, I think that, that to me, like the most fast, you know, the most fascinating uh, kind of outcome, potential outcome, and maybe the one that I prefer as a reporter, because it will give us the opportunity to write so many, so much about this, and that will cause so much controversy is, you know, if, if the benefit of the canamab is tiny, right? Like a, that's, that's, you know, really small. Um, and what does it, but yet it's statistically significant. So, you know, technically uh, or officially, you know, the study achieves the primary endpoint, positive study, but yet, you know, the benefit to patients is really hard to actually detect in kind of the real world. And that's going to, uh, that's going to trigger a, just a ton of debate, right? Just, I mean, we, we sort of had a, a taste of that with aducanumab and, we might be getting more of that with lecanemab. To bring it to like another level, Adam and I were having a conversation off the podcast yesterday. Um, Damien, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Like this, it feels like this data and like what happens with lecanemab is also going to have this like potential ripple effect because Biogen, you know, as you masterfully pointed out in your your profile um, of Stelios Papadopoulos. Um, Biogen is in the process of like finding a new CEO and whether this drug works, it feels like kind of gives you a sense of like what they're going to need in a new CEO. Like, are you going to need a new CEO that's like really like skilled at launching like a neuro drug 
Or if this data fails, will you then need to seek out a CEO who's like a really skilled like deal maker and like, you know, program finder and negotiator? Yeah, Yeah, turnaround artist. Um, And that like... (laughs) So a lot there's there's nothing writing on this data at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that that's a fascinating wrinkle to this. In addition to the fact that the way the um, collaboration between Biogen and ASI is structured, Biogen was in the driver's seat for Aducanumab, and ASI is very mm-hmm. much in the driver's seat for Lecanumab, which changes some of the dynamics. But to your point about the CEO search, yeah, I think it's massively important because you know separate from who you might be looking for, the the kind of candidate you might be able to get is conceivably affected by the outcome of this trial. Because if there are, and we know, we're told that the board is, you know, actively and and very dedicatedly um, interviewing candidates and pursuing this process to try to get a CEO expeditiously, but it wouldn't be surprising if there's a kind of candidate who is like, hey, why don't you call me after Lacanamab? Because Oh, yeah, that's a good point. If you want to come in and implement a vision for Biogen, this storied company that has a lot of cash, a lot of opportunity to change direction, to evolve itself, you know, you can imagine that imaginations would be rolling with a certain kind of person um, when offered this opportunity. But you would want to know whether you would be, I mean, the word that came to mind is shackled, that's unfair, whether you would be obligated <laughs> to marketing this new Alzheimer's treatment if it succeeds or, or putatively succeeds in this trial. Because I think people looking from the outside watching the Adju Helm saga didn't think, oh, that looks fun. I'm not saying that the Lacanumab <laughs> data will be like the Adju Helm data, but you know, if it, it ends up being another kind of thorny commercial prospect with lots of controversy, lots of fighting with CMS and FDA and, and the press for that matter, that's that might put off a certain kind of candidate who might be attracted to the idea of stepping into a biogen in decline and, you know, being its savior, for lack of a better term. So, so yeah, that, that is definitely a storyline at play here as well. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. That and was so President Joe Biden in conversation with 60 Minutes host Scott Pelley, speaking words that led to more Twitter threads and think pieces than you could read in a lifetime. We will not force you to endure a debate on whether those words are true. Instead, we wanted to discuss a bigger question. What should our leaders be saying about COVID-19 as the pandemic enters its third year? So joining us to talk about it is Heidi Torek, a Canada Research Chair and professor at the University of British Columbia, who has studied the history and evolution of public health communication. Heidi, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me again. So, Heidi, let's start with Biden's words. You know, a lot of people in public health were less than enthusiastic with the president, as we mentioned. Uh, But as many have pointed out, millions of Americans go about their lives as though the pandemic is indeed over. And and quite a few live as though it never actually started. Um, What does the reaction to Biden's statement tell us about the public perception of the pandemic? So I think it, it's another phase in, in one of many phases where for some Americans this rings true and for others this rings like an alarm bell. And we're certainly seeing, as, as you said, many public health experts saying 
this can have real consequences, not just for how people think about this disease, but also for their behavior. And I think that's one of the key points is maybe less this description, but what is it actually going to do in terms of how Americans deal with COVID-19 in the future? So Ashish Jha, your fellow former guest of this podcast, is the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. And part of that job is going on TV and telling people to get their booster shots and generally abide by COVID precautions. Does Biden's statement put him in an awkward position? And, and just generally, how does it how does it frame the work of other COVID communicators in the United States? It's really, in many ways, a very jarring moment for Biden to have made that statement really just a couple of weeks or even less than two weeks after the rollout of the new bivalent booster. I think it puts people like Ashish Jha in an extremely difficult position because at the very moment that the president is saying the pandemic is over, Ashish Jha and others have to come out and urge people to do something about the very pandemic that is purportedly no longer with us. So I think it's that temporal juxtaposition that makes it particularly difficult. And the other thing that makes it difficult is that there isn't a framing like with a flu shot that this is seasonal because we don't know when waves come and we've seen waves definitely happen in the summer. And I think that presents an additional challenge because it's not possible to communicate about when exactly boosters will come. We don't have an idea that there will be flu COVID combined shots. None of that stuff is there yet, which is what we would expect if we were entering a phase where the disease was more predictable. So I think it really does create huge problems for communicators, both these sort of top level ones like JAR and those on the ground who are trying to encourage people not just to get that bivalent booster, but even to get first or second doses. Yeah. Is is this a conversation that leaders and, and public health agencies in other parts of the world are copying or or is similar to what is happening elsewhere how are you know different regions of the world talking about covid in 2022 in it are there any like standout examples of like really good or really poor messaging it's a great question i i think we see in a weird way, it's like another mirror of March 2020, where people started and countries started choosing their own adventures. We're still seeing that happen now in, in quite different directions. So, for example, in, in Canada, where I am, there is still now a vaccine mandate to enter into the country if you're not a Canadian citizen. Um, there are discussions about dropping that, but that hasn't happened yet. There's still potential random testing when you enter into the country, regardless of what your citizenship is so there's certainly still um still a vaccine mandate for trains and planes so certainly some stuff still going on here and then another country that that actually has been even more explicit in planning forwards has been Germany which still has uh, mandates for um KN95s or FFP2 masks on public transportation trains etc and back in the summer already released a plan for the winter which did involve potentially ratcheting up the amount of mask use so that's really a stark contrast to what's going on in the US long term plans getting released in the summer involving masks, ideas of rationing up and down. That's just to give you two examples of how, as I say, I think countries are starting to, to choose their own adventure. And that also makes it difficult for communicators, especially in places like Canada, where people look a lot to the US to see what's happening. So to inject a personal note here, I actually got my covalent booster on Monday. Uh, so, you know, I, I heard what President Biden said, his declaration, and it didn't, it didn't 
I didn't cancel my appointment, I guess I'm trying to say. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that, that it could have an impact, like you said, you know, given that this is happening right at the same time that, you know, that health, public health officials are trying to get people to go and get a covalent booster. So I guess my question to you is, Heidi, is like, how do communicators, how should they be threading that needle between, you know, kind of alarmism that, you know, that's going to just people are just going to dismiss versus, you know, kind of being more nonchalant or sort of, or even denialism that could put people in danger. Yeah, we're confronted with a, a problem that we've had for a very long time, which is the false dichotomy problem. Either the pandemic is over or it's an apocalypse. Um, either everybody's going to die who gets COVID or nobody's going to be affected by it at all. And, and it's a tough challenge for communicators at this moment in the pandemic to try to weave a thread that's a bit more nuanced. But I think it's really essential. And, and Germany did try to do that in its messaging in the, over the summer saying schools are not going to get closed down again. So really trying to message we're not going to be going back to anything like that, but we're going to be using these protections to ensure that we get there. So I think that's one of the keys is that it's really important for communicators to be very, very clear that this is not about lockdowns again. This is not a binary of zero versus one like a computer. This is about a dial and the attempt is really to protect as many people as possible and find strategies that are mitigating, but let people get on with their lives and that that's the place that we are at now. And I think that's the kind of messaging that that has a chance of succeeding. And even I think going beyond the vaccine, which is what we've been talking about um, for now, but of course, what many public health communicators want to do is, is to get people to just play things safer. If it's nice weather, sit outside instead of sitting inside, open a window, all these sorts of small small things that can actually make a huge difference. And I think continue to communicate around them um, would actually be helpful. Just reminding people, these things make a difference. They're basically zero cost. Uh, let's do them as well. So we're heading into something of a bake-off of these choose-your-own-adventure stories. I'm mixing imagery here really regrettably. But, you know, researchers expect most likely a spike in COVID cases as the Northern Hemisphere heads into its third pandemic winter, which will require more public messaging from leaders around the world as people decide what to do um, in the winter months. What are you looking out for, you know, as someone who tracks this in terms of, you know, yardsticks or, or means of judging which form of communication might have been most effective as we move into the winter? Yeah, I'm looking for a whole host of things. One is just, um, are there leaders and public health communicators communicating around the airborne nature of this disease? It may seem obvious to those of us who are marinated in the COVID soup that it's an airborne disease, but for many people, it is still not obvious. For many businesses who say they're taking COVID precautions by giving you a clean pen, it's not obvious that this is an airborne disease. So that's that's number one, very basic, but but very important Number two, are they giving people simple tools to try to keep themselves safer, opening windows, blah, 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 just reiterating those basic messages that I think for many people still haven't landed. Um, number three, are they talking at all about long COVID? So explaining that, unfortunately, our understanding of this disease has evolved to the extent that for people who are vaccinated, it's really not so much the question of hospitalization or, or death. It's really the question of these long-term consequences. We see some countries starting to message around that, but but many uh, that still aren't. And then fourth, how are they messaging around boosters? And maybe fifth, um, are they trying to get out of this dichotomy of 
every kind of protection is a lockdown? And are they really trying to address that problem, which I think in many, many countries is essential to address because people are scared and unhappy about the prospect of their kids not being in school. So they want reassurance that isn't going to happen again. And they will be more open to taking other measures if the payoff is your kids still get to go to school. I want to follow up on that comment about messaging around long COVID. How do you message around a condition that it seems that we still are really struggling to understand? Like, what are we seeing other countries do um, in terms of like, you know, reminding citizens that, you know, there is still a risk of getting COVID in that you could get this, you know, relatively unknown condition um, that has a, a wide variety of effects. I wish that I could point you to a country that's doing an amazing job with this. It may exist, but I haven't been reading about it. But at least there are some places where researchers, you know, in the UK and elsewhere, that there are some statistics getting released about how many people are on disability due to long COVID. So there is some awareness being raised even by the statistical collection of data. And I think that, that in the US, of course, there are a whole bunch of researchers who are working on this. I think the problem is that a lot of the time politicians are not messaging around it. So as I say, I would love to give you a country where I think that the messaging has been top on this, um, and particularly about, as you say, the uncertainty as to what this condition really entails in the long term. Because I, I know there are many people who think, oh, long COVID, that just means a cough for an extra couple of months. Who cares? And trying to really explain the potential gravity, potential statistical likelihood, risk, basic sort of risk communication. I haven't seen really places that are doing an excellent job on that. Well, hopefully Biden doesn't go on TV in the coming months and say that the pandemic is back on. Um, but if that happens, Heidi, we will we'll bring you back on the podcast and you can you can tell us about it, talk about it. But uh, thanks so much for your time today and uh, for your comments. Cheers. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think the COVID-19 pandemic is over or not. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. 